Good morning. I ask you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Thank you. Great morning it's been. I get to sit through three services and just so thankful for all of those in our church that help lead worship. Pastor Kevin, Scott, all those with them and just thankful to be able to worship together. And uh, I'd encourage you to do it sometimes. Sent through all three, it would make me feel better too, uh, making me think that you might be here to listen to me. Um, but God is gracious to us and privileged us with this wonderful gift. I want to continue in Acts chapter 4 and uh, just kind of setting the stage. Maybe, uh, as you know, we've been going through the book of Acts, seeing how the Lord builds his church, how the Lord builds his church. And so starting back in chapter 3, really, we're kind of coming to the conclusion of uh, an event that happened in chapter 3 and then was dealt with in chapter 4. And so uh, we remember in chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, just like they had normally done. And as they go to the temple to pray, this time they see the lame man laid by the gate who had been there from birth. And they recognized him, silver and gold they do not have, but in the name of Jesus rise and walk. And this lame man rose up to walk again. Immediately his ankles and legs were strengthened and it says he was jumping and leaping and praising God. Now clearly this would begin a scene to develop in the temple itself as many people began to look around and say, what is going on? Isn't this the one who was sitting by the gate? But now we see him walking. So the opportunity arose as everyone was gathered around to see what was happening. The opportunity arose for Peter to bear witness about what has happened. And Peter says, it's the name of Jesus that has made this man well. And this name, Jesus, who you crucified, God raised from the dead, is now the living king and savior of all of the universe. So you can repent and believe. And just like this lame man was once sick and not well, now you can be made right before God as well. Of course, this caused some great trouble for him as he's speaking to those in the temple, the Leaders, the high priestly family, if you will, led by Caiaphas, hear what Peter and John are saying. They're not okay with this. They were the ones who had conspired to kill Jesus on the cross, hoping to end his name, hoping to end the threat of this one called Jesus. And now, in the name of Jesus, these are coming proclaiming salvation, proclaiming he's alive. So they arrest Peter and John, and they throw him in jail. And throwing them in jail, they wait. They let them sit there overnight. The next day, chapter 4, in chapter 4, Peter and John have to appear before the council of all of the leadership. They appear before the council, and they have to give an account. And upon giving the account, Peter makes it very clear, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made alive. And there is salvation under no other name and under heaven by which you must be saved. The testimony, the witness is clear. Peter speaks boldly to them. And now as he does this, these leaders are threatened. They begin to give Peter and John a rebuke, and they tell them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. And it tells us in verse 19, Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And so the gauntlet has been laid down, if you will. They were told, do not speak anymore about Jesus or his name. And Peter responds, you can't stop us. It's going to happen. And with that idea, with that understanding now, Peter knows trouble is coming from this. Even though they have to release them that day because the lame man standing right there, nobody can deny what has happened. Even though they have to release them that day, he knows trouble is coming, and surely it is. For just a few chapters, Stephen will be stoned. A few chapters after that, James will be killed. Surely trouble is coming for those because this now is the threat before them. And as they released, they go back to their friends, it says, those who were the apostles and those who were the believers, gathered together, and they recount what happened. And our passage this morning is picking up there as Peter and John return to the friends, return to the apostles, and those who were these early believers there, and recount the story of what takes place and then what follows. So there in verse 23, let's read this together. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity and privilege. And even as we gather together in this place, having sung praises to your name, having gathered together around your word, now, Father, we are taking advantage of one of the greatest privileges we have as your people, prayer. And so, God, teach us to pray. Mold us as people to be dependent upon you so that prayer becomes our very breath, our very life. God, help us to recognize that you will build your church through a people dependent upon you in prayer. Grant us these things, each and every one of us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Prayer is quite often the last thing that we turn to when we've exhausted all other options. In fact, that's quite common for us in our culture, in our place. We that live in America, we have everything we need. So when we get sick, there is ample medicine for that. When we have some sort of uh, problem with our own self and our own understanding, we got counseling galore. We can find those things. Whenever we're looking for some way to get through some situation or something, we oftentimes exhaust all of our options that we can possibly exhaust before we ever come to the idea that we need to pray. It's this idea that thinks we can solve things on our own. It's this idea that thinks we can get through something. And really, we never or we rarely pray until we have to. Until we have to. 
But what I want us to do today as we start is just to consider like these early Christians, these apostles who had been with Jesus throughout his ministry, consider the promises that surround this call to prayer. Consider what God said about prayer. Consider what Jesus taught about prayer. He says, if you ask, I will answer. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. Jesus taught parables and said, here, whatever you do, always pray and don't lose heart. Consider what causes us to lose heart, what causes us to worry, what causes us to have stress. Consider those things and realize Jesus says, pray and don't lose heart. Always pray and don't lose heart. Or this one, Jesus said three times a promise that is so profound for us. Three times in John's gospel, he gives this promise. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Understand this and the intensity of this. Jesus has obligated himself to those who believe in him that if you call upon him, he will answer. Y'all understand that we are probably a people that do not like to obligate ourselves. Y'all know that any question my kids ask, my favorite answer is maybe. And if I don't answer with maybe, I'll drop a we'll see. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We don't like to obligate ourselves in any way. Every one of us has experienced that. When someone comes up to us and says, hey, what you doing on Friday? We ain't got no plans, and we don't want to do anything with them. So how do you answer that? You see what I'm saying? We don't want to obligate ourselves to anything. We don't want to obligate our time. We don't want to obligate the future. We'll see, maybe. We don't like to obligate ourselves to anybody. But do you understand what Jesus says when he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it? The God of the universe, the creator the maker of heaven and earth, has obligated himself to those who believe in him and said, if you ask anything from me, I will give it. Do you understand the gravity of that statement, the gravity of that promise? And this teaching that Jesus gives about prayer echoed right down through these early believers in Acts chapter 4. They understood as they gathered together that the problems they were facing, there's no remedy for these things that the world can offer. They first had to turn to the Lord. I didn't even realize this until I was taken out of a context of this, this context myself and put into another context where believers do not have as much as we do and they don't have the resources we have and they don't have the options we have. And when you see them, they've got more than we have whenever they turn to the Lord in prayer first. So it is for these believers. These believers here in Acts 4 recognize that the simple solution to their needs is to go to God in prayer. They were together. They were united. Nothing unites believers like opposition from the outside, and that opposition has come. That gauntlet has been raised. Don't say it. Don't speak anymore about the name of Jesus or else. And so they're together. They're united. And what I want us to see as we look to this prayer that they pray is that the Lord builds his church through a people that are dependent upon him in prayer. 
The Lord builds his church through a people who are dependent upon him in prayer. Let's learn a few things from this prayer of these early saints in Acts chapter 4 that has been recorded for us by the Holy Spirit. One of the first things we can learn is that they prayed to a sovereign Lord. They prayed to a sovereign Lord. I mean, it's simple. It's right there in their address. You don't have to be the rocket scientist or any great speaker or preacher to see what they say. They've gathered together. They've heard the, the, the reports of the threats that were made, and they turned to the Lord. And when they turned to the Lord, they address him, sovereign Lord. This was a clear statement. They were confident in the Lord's control over the situation. They were confident in the Lord's control over what was happening to them. This helps imply their understanding of what was taking place. And this confidence leads us to something that we as believers must always hold fast to. We cannot let go of this truth. And the truth is this, that God is in absolute control over the universe, including every one of our present circumstances. If we were to lose that idea, then we got to recognize that he ceases to be God. If we were to lose the idea that God is in control of the universe and all of our circumstances, then by all means, why would we be praying to him? Just to inform him or let him know what we may be thinking? That's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to call on the king of the universe in whom we are dependent upon to do something and act. And we believe God is in control. That's what they say. In fact, it comes from, from the very heart of it. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They extol the Lord in his matchless power and character by demonstrating the fact that you are the creator over it all. God, there was nothing. God spoke, and then there was creation. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything, it says. So they're speaking of this sovereign Lord who made it all, who formed it all. From the moment God said, let there be light, to the moment Peter and John were threatened with talking or speaking in Jesus' name, God had never taken a loss. Do you understand what I'm saying here? God spoke and he said, let there be light, and there was light. He broke everything out in creation. He created all things by the word of his mouth. Everything that happened throughout history, God had never taken a loss in anything. He is undefeated. Everything he had called to do, everything he's brought about, he is undefeated in it all. And so the moment you might think, that, oh, that was bad, like they crucified Jesus, you only find out that they were doing the perfect plan and will of God himself. And so ultimately, as Paul says, and I've mentioned several times through this, that the Lord turns his enemies and makes them into a footstool. He's undefeated in such a way that his enemies are even serving him. His enemies even serve his purposes. Here they say that very thing, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. What's happening here is in the sovereign power of God, not outside of his will, but clearly in it. Even the threats of those who are against his people, everything happens for their good, for their good. Now, I'll give you that. We know that verse, right? Romans 8, 28. But our problem sometimes with that verse is we don't understand what good is. We don't understand what our good is. I had a friend in seminary 
who while they were in seminary, they had, him and his wife had five miscarriages. Painful. Dying to have children, wanting, longing for children. Five miscarriages. This is an incredible story. They finally adopted two, only to have two of their own. You see how God works. But in that fifth miscarriage, over at his apartment, just speaking to him about it, and just at a loss for words, another friend came in, and he was sharing with him. He said, you know, at this point, a lot of people quote Romans 8, 28. Everything's working out for your good. He said, but they miss Romans 8, 29. And your good is to be shaped, carved into the image of Christ Jesus. And so in other words, our good is not what we think it is. We think our good is to have some healthy, happy life, everything and to use some precision or intellectual language. Everything is hunky-dory, you see? Everything's fine, it's going great. That's what we think our good is. Our good is not that we never face any adversaries. Our good is not that we never have any opposition. Our good is not that we never have any pain. Our good is that whatever happens to us, God is molding us and shaping us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what our good is. And the Lord is committed that to those who love him, that's what's happening. It's why Paul doesn't keep praying that the Lord will remove that thorn from his flesh because he recognized that thorn in his flesh what was bringing him humility in his life. It was shaping him and carving him into the image of Christ. Because the most important thing is not that we get to the end of our life healthy and happy and everything's great. The most important thing is that we get to the end recognizing and seeing and knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and being shaped into the image of his Son. And so here... The disciples look at this and say, whatever happens to us is for our good because it's happening to make us and form us into the image of Christ. So in that way then, we can recognize that the Lord has never taken a loss. He's undefeated in these things. Everything happens for our good. The enemies of God are even serving him. Darkness has to flee. The world may be passing away, but Jesus reigns over it all. And he's victorious. And even then, as they recognize the sovereignty of God in these things, they turn to the word. In turning to the word, they had been given the key to understanding it. Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to his disciples after he'd been raised, everything written about me in the Psalms, the prophets, and the writings, all of it is about me. That the son of man will be, would suffer, die, be buried, be raised again, and that should be proclaimed to the nations. Jesus is our key to understanding all the scriptures, Luke says in Luke 24. And so as the, the apostles come to this, they have Jesus as their hermeneutical key in understanding all of the text. They come to Psalm 2 and they recognize this is about Jesus and what's happening right now, he's already told us what happened. In fact, he says, why do the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. He tells us that, that that was written by David, and David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. A clear statement of the inspiration of God's word, that all of God's word is God breathed to us. So David is writing Psalm 2, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write these things. And as they look at it, they say the last few months in Jerusalem have testified to Psalm 2 to be true. For truly in this city they're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They gathered against him. But the Lord, as Psalm 2 tells us, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs at them. 
Because in their effort to suppress Jesus, to put him down, and to never hear of his name again, they only demonstrated that he is sovereign Lord of the universe. Because while they put him to death, God raised him up, and they only did what God's sovereign plan had for them. The Lord sits in heaven and laughs at those who come after his son and his people. For God reigns above them all. This one servant, Jesus Christ, as Isaiah tells us what the servant would do, is testified as the one who is alive, Jesus the Lord. And their prayer now comes addressed to him. And I want us to understand one thing simply. Prayer is only as powerful as the one to whom it is addressed. Prayer is only as powerful as the one to whom it is addressed. You may be meditating on nature. You may be contemplating the universe, if you will. For all I know, you may spend time conversing with your inner self. My granddaddy called that navel gazing. Y'all know what that means? You're staring at your belly button talking to yourself. You may be doing all of those things, meditating on nature, conversing with the inner self, but you need to know that nature cannot save you from your sins. You need to know that nature only exists because the God of the universe spoke it into existence. You need to know that you can meditate on those things, you can think about those things, you can contemplate those things all you want to, but those things cannot make you right before a holy God. It is only he who can do that. He has the power to save you and change you. And so prayer is only as powerful as the one to whom it is addressed. Don't think you can address anything or anybody else and get what God can give you. He can only do it. And I don't want to be nice in this sense, but all of those things are useless for you against your sin, against the devil, against yourself. All of those things are useless unless you address the holy sovereign God of the universe. He alone can change your life. And he alone has the power to do it. These early believers called out to the one who was in charge of it all. They called out to the one who rules and reigns over all things. They called out to the undefeated one that day. And what did they say? Notice three simple things about structure of this that kind of helps us in our own prayer life, I think. First of all, everything they said, as we've already talked about, was shaped by the word of God. Everything they said was shaped by Scripture itself. They, they, they mentioned this. They don't, they don't even mention, excuse me, they don't even mention the crisis until the very end. The whole first part of this prayer is talking about the Scriptures. They reflect back to Psalm 146. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Why do you trust in the princes of this world when this is the one who reigns over all creation? He's the one who saves. They refer back here, directly quoting Psalm 2. This is the one who the nations will rage against, but he is the one who the nations are in inheritance for him through his death and resurrection. The nations will rage, but he will receive them as his own. This is the one. Therefore, as they come to their prayer time, letting Scripture shape what they prayed helps them not to get out of balance. But it gives them the understanding, as Scripture shapes it, that they are in God's plan for God's time for all eternity. Letting Scripture shape our prayers helps bring focus to our prayers. 
Helps see the fulfillment of our prayers in Jesus Christ. It helps to make our prayers God-centered, not man-centered. It helps us focus in on these things. And we, we as a church, encourage you to pray here, as we've preached on this before, to pray with your Bible open. I'm not talking about whenever you pray, asking God to give you patience because somebody pulled out in front of you. Don't open your Bible then. But what I'm talking about is daily when you get along with God, open up God's word. And if you can't have God's word with you, remember the promises of God and pray them back to him. Let God's word frame our prayers. It gives life to them. It avoids repetition. Many people come to me and they say, Pastor, I can't pray but like five minutes and I'm done. Open up God's word. And let God use his word to focus and shape your prayers. And I promise you, your prayer life would become more and more rich for you every day. They were shaped by the prayers of God, tuning their heart to God's heart. But notice, secondly, notice what they didn't pray for. They come to the end of it in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to end those threats. Is that what they prayed? No. They didn't pray to God to stop them from, from being mean to them and having opposition. Surely that's what we probably would think first. God, make them quit. Make them stop, Lord. I don't want them to do this anymore. That's too, that's, 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 it's scary to think of what they could do to us. Make their, make their threats end. Again, remember that we're just at the beginning here. These threats are real threats. These threats are real threats. Why? Because Stephen's going to be stoned. And Saul, who, who would later become Paul, is going to Damascus with, with arrest warrants in his hands for those who proclaim Christ. These are real threats as they go after those who would proclaim Christ. So these are not some small things. This is not some little thing. They know their life is in the balance here. But they don't ask God to take away the threats. They don't ask for that. Why? Because they're informed by his word. They know that this is exactly what God said would happen. By letting prayer reign in their, in their, in their, in their um, scripture, reign in their prayers, they recognize that just as Acts 2 said, what's happening right now was what God said was happening. And ultimately, by not asking God to take away those threats, they recognize that they trust God to do exactly what he said or needs to do, even with their own life. Trust God to deal with this. Trust God to handle this. God, you're in charge. We're not. So whatever you send our way, even if it's the threats of these people who could put us to death, whatever you send our way, we trust you. We trust you to help us to get through it. You can pray for all sorts of things. You can pray and I, you, can, you can think about your own prayer life and how it is littered with different prayers for different things. But just understand that whatever those things are, and I won't go through them now, you can know whether it's your toe hurting or your back hurting or don't want, more, don't want any more bills and you hope to win the lottery. I don't know what it is. But the prayers that God desires from us are informed by his word so as to say, whatever we do, God, we trust you. Whatever, we, whatever you bring to us, we trust you. We trust you. In the midst of this prayer is a great trust to call on the Lord, not to take it away, but to give them something. So you notice what they do pray for. They pray for boldness. 
Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, I used to ask for courage. Same type thing. And I don't want to really split these words too much because courage is fine. That's good. But I want to see the little bit of a different understanding here. Courage is often seen as this great, uh, great uh, virtue of men and women, those who have courage. It's conjured up from within us. It's, it's something we have that, that seemingly is a, a great virtue that we've done. So it comes from within. You must have great courage in yourself, in your place, in what you have. Have that great courage. Courage comes from within. In that sense, sometimes it's seen as man-centered. But boldness is different. Boldness is trusting what you know in the face of great difficulty. It's simple. It's like this. I remember uh, being in first grade, and, and although it's hard to believe because I was always the coolest kid around, some other boys were picking on me. You can laugh about that. I wasn't really the coolest kid. But some other boys were picking on me, and I shared that with my brother. So my fifth grade brother said, I'll walk you to class. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so we walk up to class, and those boys start picking on me, and here my fifth grade brother steps in to the doorway. Oh, now we got to deal with fifth grade brother. I'm going to tell y'all who was the boldest, most confident kid you've ever seen in your life that day. It was me. <laughs> While I think it would be illegal, my fifth grade brother could beat up any one of those first graders. And I had boldness, not because of some courage that was up inside of me that welled up that day to face it. I had boldness because I knew who was standing with me, right? I knew in the one who could handle this situation on my behalf. And I believe that's exactly what we see here. Not just courage to think we can make it through and we can press on and we can white knuckle this thing and get through it, but a boldness to understand that God is on our side and whatever happens in front of us is happening because he's planned it so I can face it with that confidence every single day and always. That's where the boldness comes in. And what the, what the devil desires for God's people is to implement a little bit of fear. It's a great weapon against the people of God. If I could just get some fear in their gut and in their soul, that fear will cause them not to speak up when it's time to give witness. That fear will cause them to step out of a situation instead of stepping into it whenever God has given them opportunity. That fear will give us every reason we have not to stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ. That fear will cause us to go backwards in what these disciples said. What these apostles prayed for was that God would not give them fear but boldness. And notice what it says. They were filled with the Spirit. And you know what Paul says? The Spirit did not give us a spirit. The Lord God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power. That's what he's given us. And so ultimately, the boldness comes for we know who we trust in, we know he's in charge, we know he's in control, and we can face whatever great difficulty knowing who is with us and beside us. And how much or how badly do God's people need boldness today? You're probably thinking of a situation in your own life where you wish you had boldness to speak up and bear witness to the truth in light of it. You may be thinking about some people in your life that you, you need boldness to share the gospel with because it's going to be a difficult conversation, you know, but a conversation they are desperate for. You may be thinking about any and every conversation you may have, and what you really need to have that conversation is boldness in the one in whom you trust. The one in whom you trust. They prayed for boldness that day. They prayed to the 
sovereign Lord who's in control give us boldness because the sovereign Lord who's in control of all things is surely the Lord of the church and its mission. He's surely the Lord of church and his mission. The prayer is answered, by the way, in our passage by an earthquake. Here it says, Lord, give us boldness because you're going to keep doing what you do. You're going to stretch out your hand and people are going to change. Lives are going to be changed. You're going to keep doing so. Give us boldness in the face of that Lord. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. The prayer here is an answer. This earthquake is a a testimony to the answer of this prayer of those who believe. An awesome demonstration of the presence of God in their midst. Like Sinai, the earth quaked when the Lord came down. Like Isaiah chapter 6, whenever he appears to Isaiah, the earth shook when the Lord showed his presence, giving testimony to his people, I am with you. But not only that, what else does it say? It says not only did the Lord show his presence, but the Spirit was within them. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This time the Spirit comes filling with them, filling them and giving them a deep sense, not of tongues or speaking in languages that they never heard, not in any of those gifts, but the Spirit gave them boldness. And for all of those who trust in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have everything you need. The sovereign Lord of the universe at your beck and call because he's obligated himself to you. The spirit of God dwelling within you because he, you are his and he is yours. You have everything you need to face whatever it is in boldness. With great boldness. The confidence is seen here and who is with us and whose presence we have inside of us. The Lord answered our prayers, if the Lord answered your prayers, what would change? What would be different? Would you just be healthier physically? Would your finances just be in better shape? Is that what it would be? If the Lord answers your prayers, what would change in your life? Here's something you need to know and remember, that every single one of us in this room If we're a child of God, if we're a believer, if we've repented of our sins and turned to Jesus by faith and we're trusting in him as our Savior and Lord, just as we saw witness to today, if that's the case, in God's great uh, understanding of all things and in his power, you need to know that you're a believer because somebody prayed for you. There's not a person in this room that cannot trace their salvation back to somebody who prayed for them. Think about it. Think about who it is, whether it's a mother or a grandmother or a friend or a neighbor. We share the gospel with prayer in mind. And so we are all here because God heard the prayers of those who called to save us and change us. Who is it that you're praying for to be saved and changed? Well, think about this. I promise you, you can't be praying for someone who desperately needs it. Maybe your child, maybe your grandchild, your friend, your coworker. You can't be praying for someone who desperately needs to know the change of God. You can't be praying for them without having boldness to speak to them. Those two things go together. You pray for them, I promise you, the Lord will give you boldness and opportunity. Trust the Lord in this. And you say, Josh, if I could just have the earth shake, that would be better for me. You've got something even better, friends. You've got the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And I promise you, 
If you want the earth to shake, then let's be a church centered upon God's word, dependent upon him in prayer, and we'll see our neighborhoods and our neighbors shake with the goodness and glory of God, I promise. We'll see our church shake with his presence, I promise. Pray that prayer. Are you praying? Martin Luther said, Show me a Christian who doesn't pray and I'll show you somebody who's not a Christian. It's the very heart of who we are and what we do. The breath that we breathe is our prayers. So for child of God, listen, pray. And when you pray, pray to the God and maker of the universe. Pray to the, the creator of all things. Pray to the one who's sovereign above it all. Don't pray some simple, small little prayer. Yeah, that's fine, but pray the prayers that change the world for Christ Jesus. That's what they prayed here. Pray the prayers that change the world. Call upon God to do big things. That's what he's expecting from us. And when we call upon him to do big things, I trust by his goodness and his grace and the power of his name he will do it. Let's go to him now. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. God, we thank you for the power of prayer, how you have obligated yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, to hear us. So God, I'm asking you now, if there's someone in this place that does not know you, God, change their heart even now to see you in all of your glory and all of your splendor and all of your majesty, to see Jesus as Savior and Lord over all things and help them, God, to change their life through the power of your spirit to follow you. God, I pray that now. For us as believers, may we never take the privilege of prayer for granted. May we rejoice in every opportunity we have to come to you. Stir these things in our hearts even now. For you, Lord, are worthy. You are worthy. Father, thank you for Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.